Welcome to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen. Daily, we bring you insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. Find Bloomberg Surveillance on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Bloomberg. There's some real oddities in the foreign exchange market uh, as clearly market participants search for information. Let's drive that forward uh, right now. Sebastian Galley with us with Nordia. He's known for writing wonderfully dense, important notes where you're like, damn, I hate this guy. I've got to read every paragraph. And we do that you're with right, Sebastian uh, Galley. Sebastian, open question to get the conversation started. What is your observation on currency dynamics right now? I think what you're seeing is basically a form of normalization. You're seeing, for example, the euro appreciated against the sterling. It's also being driven by expectations of negative rates uh, in the United Kingdom. You're seeing some form of normalization, but no great trends. Uh, if you look, for example, in emerging market, the Turkish lira, which is something people love to hate for good reasons, has actually been appreciating over the last two to, to three weeks and doing actually quite well, helping yeah. the central bank over there to cut interest rates by 50 basis points today. You could see it on your Bloomberg. Okay, screen. this is great. And, you know, Brazilian Reals actually had a couple good gays versus the horrific uh, pandemic statistics out of there. But, Sebastian, is there a theme that can be identified here that helps our listeners and viewers forward over the next 90 days? Can currency tell us something forward? Well, they can tell you something about the effect of negative interest rates. So if the the theme of negative interest rates in the United States is an important one, denied, of course, by the Federal Reserve, which is close to the the banks, they they think the banks actually need to have very good balance sheets, and it doesn't help what we call net income, so the ability to generate uh, money by running down the curve. Um, But if it does have a negative impact on on the dollar, it can be great, particularly versus emerging markets, also versus G10, such as uh, the euro. It could really reset the level of the dollar. And why? Because negative interest rates hit the people um, who are the most sensitive uh, to it, which is namely the, the safest type of investors, such as foreign reserves, that could be China and the likes. It happened to the Eurozone. I was there with ACB. They go for negative interest rates, particularly to target these people, to force them out of the euro to reduce it. Uh, it works to some extent, not completely, but it does work. And as they start moving, it adjusts the level of the euro. And the same obviously could happen also in the case of, of the dollar. So one shouldn't neglect the fact that negative interest rate could have a powerful impact on the U.S., particularly because it owes money to the rest of the world. It, it receives a lot of, of portfolio flows, sovereign portfolio flows, but it actually is not in a great position, though a much better position than it used to be. So it's a negative interest rate. It's, it's not a great story for fixed income in the U.S. or risk taking, though it is a bit, but it could be a powerful one for the dollar. Mm-hmm. A wise man once told me, and I won't confirm or deny whether it's the gentleman we're currently interviewing, but he once told me that when an economist becomes a central banker, they have to learn to lie. Seb, what are they lying <laughs> to us about right now? I know nothing about lying. It's absolutely not. I'm my sure. I'm sure. <laughs> Carry on, please. <laughs> Having, having clarified this, uh, that I'm not involved in this business, the business of central banking, such as the military, is a business of lying. And what your objective is, is to gather people around you uh, to create a narrative, to sell that narrative. There'll be hawks, there'll be doves, and some of them genuinely are. Um, but they are in the business of creating that storyline, which then drives expectations in the market. You then have what you could call anchor points within the market, uh, important people, large hedge fund manager, large uh, fixed income guys. And to some extent, they receive better information than others. And it's one of the reasons you want to be invested with them. And they then drive also the narratives with their own views and they 
to some extent, of course, influence the, the Fed. And it's a very powerful and well-organized type of uh, operation. So not all, all central banks are as efficient, but they are generally very, very good from the PBOC in China to the Bank of England, which is the oldest one and the most experienced one, Banque de France also, and, and the Fed. And their business is to create the environments. If they tell you there's no negative interest rates, that means they're probably considering they're working on it and they're <laughs> Do you like this, Lisa? Oh, how he yeah. called the bank he so called the Bank cynical. of England basically one of the oldest liars in central banking. So yeah, well, cynical. it's definitely the skepticism, John, that you've been showing as you say, this is just He could get start. away with that because of his accent. <laughs> he that accent. He couldn't be that cynical. <laughs> but Sebastian, let's talk about what the Fed can do. Let's say they're not lying about not wanting to use negative interest rates or not planning for it at this point. Talk about the additional tools that they have on deck. We've seen massive inflows into some of the credit ETFs and the heels of mm-hmm. Fed purchases, in particular LQD, HYG, and even JNK, more than a billion dollars over the past week into each of those funds. How realistic is this? Is the Fed backstopping this, and how much can the Fed really expand in this area? A lot. I mean, never underestimate the, the power of a central bank. As one central bank here used to say, I can put fish on my balance sheet. That's really not an issue. So never underestimate it. The <laughs> only fish? The only time when you want to... Yeah, they, they, they have said that. And the only time when you want to have doubts is when inflation is rising. So in some emerging markets, things are broken, for example. In the meat industry, that creates inflation. When you have constraints in the system, then they lose credibility and they're forced to act. But if, if you have low inflation, if there are, there's a significant amount of slack in, in the environment, they can do so much. And probably what they're going to do is try to go, of course, in the high yield, but go to small and mid caps, or mini caps and the, and the likes. Main Street facilities starting in June, it probably will be increased vastly going forward. So that's probably one thing to look forward for more aggressive central banks. They've been quite bearish on the outlook of the economy to put pressure on, on the government as well as on, on the Congress to do something, but they probably are also deeply concerned that they actually need to put uh, a much more pressure on the economy so that it rebounds quite nicely. See, Tom, this is the problem. This conversation, this very conversation, is basically why market participants do not believe the Federal Reserve when they turn around and say no to negative interest rates. And look, I'd love to think that it's true. I hope they don't go through with this, but there is a reason why so many investors still think there's a chance they go through with this, Tom. Well, you're overcome by events. I mean, that's all there is to it. I mean, you know, OBE and, and every institution can manage the messages all they want. And then when the facts change, they change. And there can be a set of facts, John, again, and I'm going to claims, what, 50 minutes away. You know, you do a couple months at 25% unemployment, yeah. that may qualify as a Sebastian Galley facts change moment. Well, Seb, let's finish there. Let's wrap things up. Let's say that the labor market doesn't snap back quickly enough. Let's say that we really get this really strong disinflationary trend that takes hold and inflation is steadily holding below where the policy rate is right now. What's the next move at the Fed? Probably the next move is, is some form of credit easing, quantitative easing, because they want to absorb uh, basically a, an expanding kind of fiscal balance from, uh, from, from the government. So they basically expand to absorb it. Uh, so that's what they need to do. MBS is going to be very slow, say not MBS. That's going to come uh, more with a lag. So you're talking about six, one, six months, one year, and one year and a half, and two years down the road. <laughs> credit easing, basically going where the pressure is and try to encourage people to take uh, credit risk and where it's very difficult to take it, such as mini caps, uh, small caps uh, and the likes, far more aggression. Negative interest rates, that largely depends on the relationship between the White House and uh, and the Federal Reserve. So it's really a, a debate. You, re, 
the Fed is essentially Republican institutions. White House obviously is a Republican one. So on one side, they have the banking system with which they're quite close to. On the other side, they're quite close to the economy in general. And so they have to find some kind of balance. Negative interest rates are, are possible in the, in the United States. They're probably working on them in terms of implications as the ECB did for six months. And, and that probably will take them another few weeks. And, and the debate ultimately will be a political one. There's, the Fed is independent, but it doesn't mean that it's not easily, to some extent, influenced in some cases. So, Gilly, thank you so much. Thanks, With Nordia, greatly, greatly appreciate it this morning. Just very, very uh, smart. Let's forget about the millions now. We used to look at statistics weekly that were 210,000. We get all lathered up if we got near 200 or 199,000, maybe 220, 230. John and I would stay up all night drinking, worrying about the future of a fully employed America. And now we're up 10 times above that, 2.4 million. And as Lisa pointed out uh, presciently uh, a bit 20 minutes ago or so, continuing claims uh, matter, and that statistic moves in the wrong direction. Stephen Rusciuto has been a student of this. He's at Mizuho, and his charm as chief U.S. economist is he writes a shockingly interesting note, always digging into Y equals C plus I, plus G, plus NX. Steve Rusciuto joins us now. Steve, on the claims, but also on your general work, what's the thing that you're most studying about the American economy? Well, I, I, clearly the, the degree of deterioration is unprecedented, not only in, in size, but also in speed. Given the nature of the lockdown, none of that should be a surprise. What I'm really looking at and focusing on that sets this position, particular period apart from others uh, that most of us have grown up in is the coordination between fiscal and monetary policy, um, striving for the same end result. Um, you know, back in 1980, uh, 79, I should say, when Paul Volcker moved us away from interest rate to money supply targeting adopted monetarism, basically the Federal Reserve has been on a process of demand management, i.e. trying to keep the economy from creating underlying inflation pressures. And therefore, anytime fiscal policy was employed, the Federal Reserve worked to counter that because they were trying to contain demand. This time through, you're seeing a Federal Reserve take the exact opposite approach, which is we want to expand demand. We need to expand demand. We will do whatever it takes to amplify whatever is done on Capitol Hill. And they're even coming out and suggesting more fiscal policy is needed, which is another major change in the, in the dynamic, because the Fed recognizes the risk they run here is global deflation being imported into the United States. And that's a situation they want to avoid, because once deflation gets here, it's very hard to get rid of. Nobody's been able to get rid of it to date. Stephen, the fiscal stimulus we've gotten so far, there's been a question about how quickly it's getting out to people. And I'm thinking in part about the enhanced jobless benefits. And this really comes into the numbers that we just saw. The continuing claims in focus as people try to gauge how many of these unemployed people are actually receiving the money from the government that has been allocated to them. We saw a bigger than expected jump in the continuing claims. Now more than 25 million people receiving those enhanced jobless benefits. What does this mean to you about how quickly people are getting the money versus how quickly people are getting their jobs back or not as we see certain economies reopen? 
You know, I, I think the problem here is going to be, even though we can get the economy back to a stronger growth trajectory much more quickly uh, than uh, I think some people anticipate, the ability to get the labor market back to where it was is something that is going to take longer. Where it could take us a year to get back to zero on a year-over-year growth rate basis, so i.e. the entire recovery stretches out for over a year, essentially this time in 2021. You know, we may be looking at a labor market that's struggling for several years, principally because, you know, we have people will be looking to try to maximize their returns as much as possible. And the easiest way to do that in an environment where demand picks up is to create a situation where you control your expenses. So, therefore, the labor market data is going to lag as it is done in every business cycle in history, and this time it's going to be one of the longer ones. The two major jobless recoveries were the 1990 post-recovery period um, and then again the 2007 period where it took us years to get back uh, to where we needed to be and eventually those very low numbers that uh, was being talked about earlier on in the beginning of this segment. Uh, so I think this is going to be a long process. Whether the economy could get back to a more healthy environment uh, within a year's time, I think it will take two years to get us back to, let's say, a 7% unemployment rate. Steve, when you look at historical parallels for a moment like this, how useful are they? Uh, there really is only one, and even that's not a particularly good uh, historical comparison. Uh, you have to go back um, to Jimmy Carter and his credit controls uh, that he imposed on the economy back in 1980 to wring out inflation in the economy. That caused the underlying pace of economic activity to drop by 10%. Um, and it caused a four percentage point upward jump in the unemployment, I should say a two and a half percent uh, jump in the unemployment rate. So therefore, nothing fully compares to this. But that's the closest we can, because again, that was a government imposed tightening of credit on an economy, which was much more heavily manufacturing than it is today. Yeah. And therefore, it had a bigger bite on the economy than it And the pain was so, so severe that they were forced to abandon it almost immediately which is why it's also the shortest recession in America's history. What's the partition, Steve Rusciuto, between big business and small business? This is beginning to percolate about who's getting the benefits, who's using the benefits, who's returning the benefits, who will get the next tranche of benefit. Split America between big business and small business. Yeah, I mean, if you're going to provide more stimulus, you have to give it to small business. Uh, the reason for it is big business has the ability to tap financial markets. And if you look at the ability of the financial markets to provide financing to larger corporations that have access to these markets, you know, in the first half of this year, we've done about a trillion dollars worth of IG origination, a trillion dollars. Uh, and a lot of it's been concentrated in the March, April, May period. No surprise there. Um, and therefore, that's reliquified a lot of them and allowed them to take a lot of the short-term liabilities they've accumulated by drawing down some lines of credit, term them out over longer, reduce the impact on their uh, interest expense and reduce their impact on their dependence on short-term borrowing, put them in a healthier financial position. It's small America that has to go to the banks. And it's small America that is not being uh, you know, adequately uh, dealt with in this particular period of time. So I think the next round of stimulus 
honestly has to continue to be focused at small, uh, smaller and mid-sized companies and to be focused at individuals. Because individuals, at the end of the day, we are a consuming economy. Three-quarters of the, two-thirds of the U.S. economy is consumer spending. And therefore, we need to make sure consumer spending picks up in order to get this economy to pick up. So those are the two areas where I think the next, you know, $1 trillion should go to. Uh, and I think it will be at least a $1 trillion bill. It may be even more than that. I don't think it will be the $3 trillion HEROES Act that was advanced by the House of Representatives, but I think it will be something along the lines of another trillion to trillion and a half. And I think all of that debt will be purchased by the Federal Reserve. So well, that's, yeah, that's certainly what we've been seeing crowding out the private sector in terms of the uh, monetization of all of the debt and all of the uh, the deficit that the U.S. is taking on. I just am wondering what we can read into beyond the claims, uh, Stephen, with respect to delinquencies that we're seeing increasing with re- uh, residential mortgages. We've seen it with credit card loans. We've seen it with auto loans. And they've only uh, continued to increase the delinquencies and defaults at an accelerating pace. At what point will we see this peak, uh, peak out, in your opinion? Well, to be honest with you, the delinquency process um, is, is a lagged process. So, again, if you were to get the economy back to zero on a year-over-year basis by the second quarter of 2021, it probably wouldn't be until the third or fourth quarter of 2021 that you would get it be at a point where you'll begin to be very comfortable that these delinquency rates are rolling over. Steve Asciutto of Mizzou. Great to catch up with you, sir. This is the most important conversation of the day. For so many of us, the whiplash, the volatility, the up to 80 on the VIX, where we are now 28, still way above VIX normal of 20. It has been a shocking, shocking 12 months. Stephen Auth has seen all this before with Federated Hermes running their equity operation. We're thrilled he could speak to us on blue chip investment. Steve, what did you do in the middle of March? I mean, I mean, you know, you're doing this for long term. Your idea of short term is three years or five years. What were you doing in the middle of March besides looking at Pittsburgh Pirates spring training? Uh, mostly I was watching Pittsburgh Pirates spring training. I, uh, you know, our, our view was in, in those kinds of downdrafts, Tom, you know, my experience tells me you just got to hold your fire. Now, we, we went into the thing, frankly, too optimistic, but we were, you know, basing our view on the idea that the market was probably heading significantly higher. A lot of drivers of this bull market I've talked about on your show, and then this yeah. Corona thing hit, and it just came apart very, very quickly. Um, we were playing the chess game, and um, you know, I learned a long time ago I'm not the smartest guy in this chessboard, and that's what I think gets the Bears in trouble. They start to think they're smarter than everybody else. And I'm looking at the same thing everyone else is looking at, and I'm thinking, well, the Fed's got to do something here. So we were advising our clients, hold your ground, hang on to your equity overweights. Uh, there will be a reaction mm-hmm. here. And so we've held our ground. And, um, mm. that's you know, we think we're still in an uptrend, you know, but what I would call a kind of short-term bear market within that. And most importantly, Tom, what we have been focusing on is stock picking. Because I figure we can't really get this market one way or the other, but we can figure out which of the stocks are going to win and lose. So down at the lows, <clears throat> everything was getting clobbered. It didn't matter whether you were a winner or a loser or somewhere yeah. in between. And that's where the real opportunity yeah. was there, was just get by these winners. We know they're going to actually do well in this environment. 
in fact, in fact, many of them are actually growing their cash flow in the corona lockdown. And Paul, uh, so that's so, been, what, in a way, the easy part of the game. Now it's getting yeah. tougher. But, Paul, you know. what's so important about what Mr. Ross says here is it's all easy to say, i got to identify the winners, but in that exercise, you try to avoid the losers. Yep. I think that's even more important <laughs> than finding the next Amazon. Exactly. I mean, well, we saw... Yeah. Steve, it, you, you know, know, you mentioned... It's a game about, you know, if you can just avoid the losers, the blow-ups in your portfolio. So, um, so Steve, what are some of the sectors here? We Again, we, we retraced kind of half of that decline. We saw that 34% decline, peak to trough. We retraced, you know, maybe a little bit more than half of that. What are some of the sectors here, as you look out to maybe the other side of this pandemic, that have got your attention right here? Well, Paul, first of all, I just want to take exception to that. that. This is one of the issues. People say we've only retraced half the decline. If you look at what I call the survivors, which is these companies are going to make it through but need the economy to be alive, they've retested their March 23 lows. It's only the winners, and the winners aren't going to retest March 23. And so the average of the market looks like it's only retraced half the dec- – well, off the low, it's declared half the decline, or in the other end, hasn't <laughs> gone back to those lows. But right. actually, the stocks that matter have. Uh, in terms of sectors, we continue to think the digitization of the economy is a big theme. It's accelerating as a result of this, so therefore we like tech. But more importantly, we like companies that are utilizing that now in the broader economy. So it goes across sectors where we're finding companies, particularly in small cap land, that are taking advantage of technology to take share. I mean, example, Teladoc, right, in <clears throat> The healthcare space is using technology to deliver healthcare services online, right? That's a big growing business right now. Um, we're looking at uh, pharma because we think that's another, that's been a trend, biotech. It's accelerating now, obviously. We're even looking at this manufacturing renaissance theme because we have a lot of companies that we think are going to, okay, right now they look pretty beaten up, but if this economy does come back as we expect it will, in fits and starts, they're going to be taking share as supply chains come back in from China. You know, that's what's going to happen the next five years. I, I don't think it matters who's the president. Do we do so, we think do we think, yeah. Steve, about you know some of the sectors that have just been really crushed? I'm, I'm thinking about energy, for example. We're seeing oil come back here um, off of this you know historic lows uh, in pricing, <laughs> negative pricing. Um, what do you think about the energy patch? Well, we're not heavy there yet. We're, we're sniffing around. I, I think on the energy patch, the way I would play it is to go with the real big integrated names. They're usually the boring stocks, but they actually are the beneficiaries. You know, they've got the balance sheets, and they're the beneficiaries of the shakeout that's now happening as all these wildcatters in Texas finally find out. And this is why the, the I think Spot's rallying is like, the wildcatters are finding out none of the uh, the depots will take their their supply, you know, and so they they're being forced to shut in, and a lot of those wells can't come back up once they're shut in. So it's the big players that have access to storage and have balance sheets to get through this 
they're going to benefit from the inevitable rebound in, in energy prices. It's going to happen over the next three years. There's been no investment in new capacity, and a lot of the existing is being shut in. And if the economy comes back, I'm not a screaming buy on these names, but I think yeah, yeah. Um, you can at least collect the dividend pretty safely here. Yeah. So I think in the energy space, I would play it more defensively is what I'm saying. Stephen Off, driving the market higher here with Federated Hermes <laughs> uh, right now. Red on the screen through the morning. Well, green right now. Dow up 26 points. S&P fractionally higher. Let me give you those levels. 2972 on Standard Poor's 500, 24606. 24,600 on the Dow. The VIX under 28, 27.87. Steve, I I hate to mention this, Paul, twice, but I got to do it in one show. (laughs) It's just a rare thing. Robert Schiffman and the team over at Bloomberg Intelligence writing up a credit report on one of the small technology stocks called Microsoft. (laughs) What would you like, Steve Auth, for those tech giants to do with all that cash? I mean, what's... Do they have an obligation to do something with it? Or is a is a conservative button-down guy like you comfortable that they got a gajillion dollars on their balance sheet? I like the fact that they got the flexibility, Tom. Um, you know, as the market cap expands, it does not become, you know, excessive. They'll do maybe some acquisitions, as Microsoft and Google have, in the areas that can expand their footprint even further. It is in that space, as you know, a rich-get-richer environment. And that's one of the reasons a lot of the large-cap names are doing well, But it's, and even the niche small-cap names that have niche capabilities that are growing in this environment. Um, that's going to be one of the games here, I guess, in the next two or three years. You're going to see further consolidation. And that's the case even in some of these sectors we didn't talk about, retail, um, restaurant chains. Uh, hotels, there's going to be a consolidation of the winning players, and you're going to have capacity come out of the system that was already suffering going into this thing. And this is just this is just accelerating that process now. It's it's violent what's going on, and yeah, that's so- one reason why you can't be overly bullish about the economy because the creative destruction process is going to be a little bit of a drag here. I think in the next 12 to 18 months. But if you're in the right stocks, I think you can still do very well. Steve, how much are, th- th- does a market really need another round of fiscal stimulus? The first several rounds we got out of Washington were generally bipartisan, generally out the door pretty quickly. But it looks like this next round, whether it's the $3 trillion that the House is proposing, not going to be so easy. How much does a market really need another round of fiscal stimulus? I don't think it, Tom, you know, or Paul, rather, um, what I kept saying during the crisis was this is not a stimulus is the way we normally think about it. It's basically a bridge loan. The economy is healthy. We need a bridge loan to get us through this liquidity <clears throat> crisis. So I think that's what the first round should be characterized. It was a bridge loan. Now, whether we need a stimulus or not depends on how well the bridge loan worked and how much greater destruction is now going to happen. But I think the first round of stimulus is now happening, which is, We've got all this cash piling up. The savings rate is through the roof. The so-called unemployed, most of them have been getting cash from the government. The businesses are, are, are pretty liquid. 
we're going to see how much of this spending gets unleashed now. And I think that itself is going to be a stimulus. And if we get progress, continued progress on the healthcare side with things like Moderna and the vaccine side, uh, that's a stimulus psychologically to consumers who need a reason to spend their cash. And so let's see how that goes over the summer. And I think this is one reason why there isn't a bipartisan support here. It's not as obvious that we need another big round of spending. Steve, that's too much optimism. Go away. Stephen (laughs) Hoth with us uh, with Federated Hermes. Really greatly appreciate his uh, attendance. It is important that we chronicle this pandemic, and we're just so proud of our staff that has given us experts around the world. Jason Farley has what appears to be a quiet job, but extremely important at the Johns Hopkins University, where he drives forward their academic acuity in nursing. We spoke to Dr. Farley today and talked about all those lights at the end of the American pandemic tunnel. There are many glimmers of hope. And I just want the, the audience to know that we, we do see hope on the horizon. The appearance of a calming of the virus in certain locales, in New York and in Baltimore, where I am, and in many other locations, is, is happening. We're seeing a flattening of the curve. But by no means does that mean we can roll back our, our active participation in the social distancing measures when we're out and about about our lives. If I look at, you know, rolling back the social participation, the fact is we see social participation. Can we get away with this, with the distances between us, six feet, 12 feet, whatever that number is? Or do we just really have to stay locked down? There's a huge pushback. Yeah, no, you know, I think that the population is exhibiting the exact same disillusionment we we anticipate you know in the beginning of any kind of pandemic you know there's great science around this we see this heroic effort of the population to come together and to, to to persevere and then that over time really gives way to this level of disillusionment where people begin to push back in this feeling of you know this desire to interact socially and we have the in the u.s the memorial day holidays coming up i would just caution you know Think and plan accordingly. If you're getting together with others, you have to set strategies so that you can maintain social distancing. By no means is this the time to bring the entire family together at the barbecue. There's tons of data from the CDC about family-related, household-related, when multiple different members of different households are coming together and the subsequent infections that ensue. There's also data about uh, transmissions in churches who have kind of exceeded their capacity. So, again, watch the large gatherings. It's really important. Jason, talk to me a bit about what medicine actually work in treating COVID-19. Well, in in the treatment of COVID-19, we still have, you know, the glimmer of hope reducing hospitalization with Redemsevir, um, although that study did not show statistical benefit related to its um, mortality of, with the drug, there was a statistical benefit of reducing the symptom burden and, and the length of symptoms and hospitalization. Um, we also have great news on the front of uh, initial preliminary results in rhesus macaques or, or monkeys, uh, as well as some guinea pig models showing initial um, uh, ability of the vaccines, of the several vaccines in evaluation to produce a great antibody response. Now, there's a long journey between the animal model and the human, but we do have at least some glimmers of hope that those viruses, um, that those vaccines are helping having an impact on the virus. So all good news. 
is the virus mutating? No, I think um, it's a relatively stable virus, but we always see because viruses replicate themselves billions and billions of copies per day, um, that we always see a little bit of a, a drift in the virus structure. So small changes in the structure so that we can say that if I gave the virus to person B and they gave it to person C and then they gave it to person D, between A and D, we will see small changes. Those changes aren't mutate. They're, they're mutations in their grossest sense of the word, but they're not mutations that mean that it changes its pathogenicity typically, or changes its its virulence, or the way in which it kills or you know causes infection. Jason Farley, the Johns Hopkins University School of Nursing. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. Subscribe and listen to interviews on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, or whichever podcast platform you prefer. I'm on Twitter at Tom Keen. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio.